If you want a wildly healthy, naturally disease-resistant pet who turns heads and starts conversations with awestruck onlookers, you're right where you belong. This is the Vital Animal Podcast with your host, homeopathic veterinarian, Dr. Will Falconer. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Will Falconer with another episode of the Vital Animal Podcast. And it's my pleasure to introduce a holistic colleague of mine who I'm just meeting really face-to-face for the first time. This is holistic veterinarian, Dr. Odette Suter. Welcome, Odette. Hi. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I I know, yeah, it's the first time that we're meeting face-to-face that way, but I feel like I've already known you for a while. (laughs) Yeah, we've been been in the same circles, that's for sure. Exactly, exactly. So I'm I'm inviting you here to talk poop with me today, of all things, and you've got some experience in that. But maybe first, just for my listeners who don't know you yet, what's been your kind of arc of being veterinarian to getting to where you are today? I know we've all gone through a little bit of a different one, but I'd love to hear yours. Well, I always tell people that I, I grew up weird and or I was born weird and I continued <laughs> to get weirder. <laughs> And that kind of breaks the ice because, you know, when you start talking holistic things with people, it's, they they think you're kind of doing some woo-woo here. <laughs> so I always tell them that, yeah, I, I'm definitely doing some voodoo stuff. And so it kind of breaks the ice, you know, just so that they know that I understand where they're coming from. But anyways, my parents were more naturally oriented. We had a veggie garden and just lived out in the country and used herbs to you know, nice. for healing and things like that. And so it was, it wasn't unnatural. And, you know, I've always had a very inquisitive mind as far as wanting to know more, have more truth, more change, more challenges. So it was very obvious that during vet school, I wasn't really too thrilled with the information that we got. It just didn't all make sense. And it, it seemed like there was a lot missing and I started to do some research even before that was more into, I was an avid horse, you know, horseman, horsewoman, I guess. So I was doing some telling touch on, on some of the horses that I was, I was riding and people uh, would always look at me weird and ask, well, is yeah. there something wrong with your horse? I'm like, yeah. no, I'm just trying to help him and, and, you know, make him feel good because, you know, I'm sitting on the horse and doing things and, I was really lucky to have met a colleague uh, when I was still in vet school who was working with natural horsemanship, but also um, hoof care. Ah. She was kind of a pioneer in that field of of getting horses back to where they should be, you know, living out in pastures and, and moving 24-7 and nice. just having a natural lifestyle. And so that really started, you know, or deepened my journey very much into looking at alternatives. And in the process, I met all sorts of people who were even weirder than I was, (laughs) you know, who are using pendulums and doing Uh animal communication and using psychics and things like that. And I'm like, well, I may as well stay open because an open mind is one that can learn and can find solutions that may not be able to be found otherwise. And beautiful. And so that was kind of my journey, you know, and it continued that way. And I was always exploring. And I think it's just how my soul is and what it came here to do is to explore things. I think I was just born that way. And 
Yeah, yeah. So then I went to vet school and then I came to the U.S. and was all stubborn and decided, well, I'm not going to get my license here. I'm already licensed. What do these Americans think? <laughs> you know, are they better than us Swiss people? I don't think so. <laughs> but eventually I, I did. And so I had to go through the whole rigmarole of, of you know, getting certified and, and licensed. And that was uh -huh. very difficult. Yes, <laughs> but in the meantime, I tried all sorts of other things to get around it. I studied psychology. I went um, to... Chinese medical school type of, you know, acupuncture school for humans. Uh -huh. Eventually, I, it always led me back to the animals. And so I guess I, here I am. And where did you, where did you land now? Are you in Illinois? Yeah, I'm in the Chicago area. Okay. Yeah, I was okay. in California for a long time and then went down to Louisiana for the licensing and then eventually landed here in Chicago. Okay. All right. Cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember after graduation, I, I went through vet school just kind of, other than meditating, oblivious to anything natural health, I guess. I was, well, I guess I was a vegetarian. Yeah, I was. And, but I wasn't thinking about alternative health. I, I was just buying everything sort of lock, stock and barrel that they were teaching me. And it wasn't mm -hmm. until years later that I started going, wait a minute, there's got to be more. Mm -hmm. So that was, that was in a thumbnail, just how I got out of it. Conventional well, medicine. You didn't bother all your professors. <laughs> no, I, every time I, they saw me coming, so they're like, "Oh, well, let's go!" <laughs> if she comes, you we're know, with be challenged. weird ideas. I know they uh, really like that very much. <laughs> like, oh well. Oh, that's great. Mm -hmm. So our our topic today is a really interesting one to me, and it's all about this thing called FMTs or fecal transplants. So it's been said there's nothing new under the sun, right? We're not making things up that have never been heard of before. So what's the history on this taking poop from a healthy animal and giving it to one who's not so healthy? Are you aware of how far back that goes? Well, it probably goes back billions of years or whenever the mammals first showed up on this planet because they were doing it on their own. And that's what we see our animals doing, you know, like especially Eating manure. dogs. They, yeah, yeah, they eat the manure, they eat their own poop, they eat somebody else's poop. I mean, you know, right. they just eat poop. And obviously as much as it grosses us out, they've been doing that for, you know, years and years. Anyways, I'm not very good with evolutionary numbers, but, you know, for, for a long time. No, that's a good point. Um, yeah, but the first, I, I read the questions that you gave me to kind of see where we're going here. And I went down that rabbit hole here, <laughs> as usual, which is really interesting. But in the fourth century China, they had this yellow soup, they called it, that they were using orally for diarrhea. But I think that because they used it oral, it, it didn't really stick very well because what human wants to eat poop? <laughs> I mean, right, right. you know, I think we humans are a little weird that way that we don't want to do that, whereas every other animal does. But anyway, so that's kind of when it started. In the 17th century, veterinarians were doing rectal transplants and oral transplants, especially with cows as well. Yes. I don't know if you had one of these cows in vet school that had a yes. fistula in that went right into the rumen. So it's basically a hole in the abdominal wall where we could reach in with gloves and yes. pull out some yes. matter really and then transplant it into another cow just to help them. Anyway, so that's been done for, for a long time. 
And in the Second World War, they were the German soldiers in, I think it was in Africa somewhere, they were using camel poop for bacterial dysentery because huh. they saw the other, the native people there do that. And so they were then doing it as well to treat the diarrhea. And it's quite interesting, the, the history of, of, you know, fecal transplants. And the, uh, in the 50s, there was uh, one guy who was doing some studies on, on that. And I also read about a surgeon who was doing some fecal transplants in people after surgery. And that was also way back when. Huh. And they had better recovery, but his methods were a little unorthodox, so he was fired. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Anyways, but yeah, so there was a lot. And I have a whole list here. But wildly recognized, it, it was really in the nine, 1978 when they started using it for C. diff infections. But in the yes. U.S., it's, it's quite a challenge to get fecal transplants for humans anyways, because it's considered by the FDA to be a drug. Yes. And so they have to have an investigational new drug application, you know, if they want to do the, the fecal transplant. Yeah. So that makes it very challenging. In Europe, it's not quite like that. So it's much easier. And, and there have been people who travel to Europe to get fecal transplant. Because uh, in the States, it's really just only we can use it for C. diff infections, which is a diarrhea type of infection. And only after three failed treatments with antibiotics, which is ridiculous because they have a 90% cure rate with the fecal transplants. But no, you have to be half dead before they will let you do that. And it's the so antibiotics that got them that way. That's what yeah, caused exactly. the C. difficile, right? Is antibiotic yeah. use. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So that's wild. Yeah. But there are a lot of people who just do it on their own. You know, they, they get a healthy family member, have the fecal matter tested, and, and then they just do it themselves because it's a very easy process. All you need to have is like an enema bag and, and then you just stick it in there and, yeah. and then, you know, up the rear end. So it's, it's very simple, really. Yeah. And you've been doing this in animals for how long, Odette? Probably been about five or six years or so that I've been doing that. I was introduced to it through Margot Roman, who I'm uh -huh. sure you know. Uh -huh. She's one of the pioneers in the veterinary field, at least most recent pioneers, and, and brought it out into the more of the mainstream. Actually, it is becoming more mainstream because um, last year I was at the at a conference, which was a very conventional veterinary conference. I was there with the animal biome people, and I got to talk a lot to a lot of veterinarians about fecal transplants, and, and a lot of them were already doing those. Wow. You know, conventional vets, which was really amazing, you know, to, to hear is. that. Yeah. So it's, it's, really, it's really taken off. And when I talk to my clients about fecal transplants, most of them have already heard about that or heard about microbiome. It's very rare that I that I come across anyone who doesn't know much about it. Yeah, already, you'd, so. you'd about have to be sleeping under a rock for the last decade to not hear anything about the biome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So it's it's quite amazing because it's it's certainly. I think one of the most potent drugs, and I'm using quotation marks here. Because it's not really a drug, but procedures, it, yeah. It really gives a lot of benefits. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And right in your state, I, I pulled up an article I think I shared with you mm-hmm. that they're doing some research on it in, a, in the University of Illinois at the Veterinary Teaching Hospital. So it has really gone mainstream. They're looking at mm-hmm. diabetes in uh, dogs and cats and seeing mm-hmm. if changing the gut microbiome can help them. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, that's really encouraging how far mainstream it's gotten. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it can be used for everything. And, you know, I often use fecal transplants for animals, even when they're healthy, just to to support them. Because we live in an environment that is not really promoting the health of microbes. We're trying to kill them as right. best we can with Roundup and other toxic chemicals, antibiotics, heartworm preventatives, dewormers. I mean, you name it. Right. We all get affected, and um, I can't remember the exact numbers, but Zach Bush, he's very much into the microbiome and the microbial right. ecology, ecology of the planet and, and such. And he said that we have, especially in the United States, we have an incredible deficiency of microbes Yes. in the environment, but also within ourselves. Uh, so. Yeah, yeah, his... He's one of my favorites to listen to, Zach Bush, mm-hmm. MD. Any, anybody mm-hmm. that's uh, read my stuff has seen me refer to him because he's so, he's so broad-based, right? He's looking at planetary health. We mm-hmm. can't have healthy animals or healthy people until we've got a healthy agriculture system and a healthy biome on the grand scale versus even the microbiome and in the handful of soil that we pick up out of the field. So, yeah, that's, he's very much on the same page. Mm-hmm. So just yeah. to define things a little bit, Odette, there's a couple of ways we, we could see getting a transplant done. One is through the rectum, which I think is probably more common, and the other is oral. And I think mm-hmm. both things are being done. Is that right? Yeah, I, I use both. It depends a little bit on the people and what they want and also on the animal. The rectal transplant is just a tube that's, I don't know, maybe... 12 inches long, maybe, and it's about the diameter of a, of a thermometer, so they tolerate that really well. I mean, yeah. it's just like taking their temperature, basically. Uh-huh. And, you know, I've done ozone, rectal ozone treatments on myself with the same kind of tube, and you really don't feel it hardly. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So it's very simple, and it does not require any kind of sedation. I've never had to sedate an animal for it, except though with cats once in a while. Because they're a little bit more difficult. They clamp down their butthole. Oh, <laughs> so it's yeah. hard to get the tube in. And when they're a little bit more fractious, it doesn't work as well. Uh-huh. So oftentimes I will combine it when they get a dental, for example, that I just give them a fecal transplant at the end of it. Nice. Things like that. Nice. But generally dogs are, are fine with that. The only exception is when they have active diarrhea it just doesn't stay in it just comes right back out and Uh i actually had a dog like that this morning it was quite messy Uh Uh, i mean she didn't really have active active diarrhea but she just i mean the tube was still in and it was squirting out Uh (laughs) i don't know (laughs) Uh so with those dogs obviously then the option would be better to go with the oral transplant with capsules because at least it stays in that way Uh and with oral capsules it, it just Takes, it's a longer course of, of treatment, so we do 30 days, uh-huh. usually um, one or two capsules a day, depending on the degree of imbalance that they have, and it works just as well. People always ask me, well, what's what works better, you know, what's more potent? 
And I can't really say because you try one and then they get better, but you can't go back and then try the other one and see how better they got, you know? Yeah, so it's yeah. like, I, I can't tell. And I've yeah. done both, you know, some of dogs that are really bad or some cats, I will do a rectal transplant and then send them home with capsules just to reinforce the treatment. Uh-huh. But yeah, so those are sort of the options that we have. And they figured out a way to get the bacteria through the stomach acid, okay? Yeah, the capsules are acid-coated, meaning that they don't get broken down in the stomach by the acid, so uh-huh. they end up in the small intestine. So uh-huh. you can't open the capsules. They can't just be put in food. They have to really go down the hatch. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, you can make a little meatball with a capsule in it. Sure. For most dogs, that <laughs> is not a problem. Right, right. Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it can go both ways, and you haven't really seen a difference one to the other. Interesting. No, I've had good success with both. Okay. Okay, good to know. Yeah. And stories. We'd love to hear stories of some cases that were difficult or in trouble and had either oral or rectal transplants and did wonderful things. Have you, have you got a couple on top of your head? Yeah, yeah. One in particular was a German shepherd named Bear. He had chronic diarrhea for two years by the time I met him. He was diagnosed with IBD. They already had done food sensitivity testing. They had switched him to a raw diet, but he still had leaky, you know, leakage going on back there. He also had a lot of anxiety. He was a bit overweight, was itchy. Oh. And how old was he? I think he was about four or five. I can't okay. remember exactly. He was still okay. on the younger side. Yeah. And he was supposed to be a police dog, but because of, of his issues, you know, especially the anxiety as well, he just, they couldn't use him basically. Uh. So when I met him, we did a fecal transplant and within a couple of days, his poop was so much better already. And then it just continued to improve yeah, so it was quite amazing. His energy level came up. He started playing with his brother and <laughs> his anxiety level went down. I mean, he really Sweet. turned into a happy dog, you know, wow. which was really neat to see. That is, that is. So that was really nice. And then another dog, her name was Maisie. She had a lot of allergies as well. And I did a fecal transplant on her and she was quite amazing, you know, so she slept for about for a couple of days straight. <laughs> you know, the owner was really concerned. Wow. But because she had been so itchy, she was just suffering from sleep deprivation, probably. And uh, once her body finally relaxed and, and such, she just finally was able to sleep. And then she just perked back up and and was doing really well after that. So, yeah, she, took so it, you know, she took it deeply. Yeah, <laughs> she took it deeply. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then some other, you know, dogs that mostly skin issues, but then also dogs with recurrent regurgitation issues, Uh, licking and, you know, when they constantly lick the air or lick things, uh, those also benefit greatly from fecal transplants. And uh um, How about these cats with IBD? That's so common in cats. Yeah, IBD, definitely. Oftentimes people say, well, IBD can't be cured or, or, you know, whatever. And they have to be on steroids for the rest of their lives or, you know, immunosuppressants. I'm like, well, you got to fix the gut and you can't fix it with, with drugs. I mean, certainly if they're really bad and you have to give them temporary relief on some level, do that while you fix the underlying issue. And 
Yes. And I always start out with some testing. You know, I want to know if they have food sensitivities because I want to remove the foods that are offensive to them, at least temporarily, mm-hmm. because otherwise it's trying to heal something while still throwing oil in the fire, basically, right. you know, right. you're trying to extinguish it, but it doesn't work. Right. So I start with that. I mean, it depends a little bit on the case. I do a lot of testing of the microbiome these days as well, just to see what sort of imbalance they have. And that way we can also compare it afterwards and see if they if we need to do more. Beautiful. And sometimes they have certain imbalances that need a little extra help, such as fibers or an extra probiotic to decrease the number of these overgrown groups. So it gives me a lot of information that way. Nice. Yeah. So I always start with that, with these IBD cases. I also check their hormone levels just to see if they need any support that way, because it seems that when they have a little bit of adrenal deficiency or just worn out adrenals, that they don't hold the fecal transplant as well. Uh, so in some of these cases, I will give them some adrenal support uh-huh. so that they can hold it better. But there are always going to be dogs and cats that will have more of a chronic type of condition going on where they may just need a little bit more support. Again, because we live in a world that's not clean, you know, a lot of them have vaccine issues and other types of issues, autoimmune conditions that are part of of that, that may just make it more difficult for things to heal completely, basically, and and be cured once and for all type of thing. Plus, I mean, we're constantly bombarded with with chemicals and The Roundup in particular is concerning. Right. I mean, yeah. that's that's a known antibiotic. That's a mm-hmm. that's a, a gut killer. Yeah. And it's yeah. everywhere. The people that have been tested in the States, it's something like 90 percent of them or something have evidence of Roundup in their in their testing tissues. I think it's blood or something. Yeah, I think urine, too, they test. Uh-huh. But yeah, I mean, Roundup is in the water. It's in the rain. It's it's, it's everywhere. So even if yeah. you have if you grow organic food you're still going to have some Roundup, but obviously a lot less. I mean, for example, dogs that eat a raw diet and don't eat dry foods like kibbles with grains and high levels of carbs, they have much less Roundup in their systems. So there's certainly ways to limit it, but I don't think anybody can get around having Roundup in their system. Some of it in there, yeah. Yeah. And Zach Bush, Dr. Zach Bush had an interesting... He's got so much I can't keep up with him out there, but he had a he had cited a study where they took people and I can't remember if it was part of the test or not, but they gave them rounds of antibiotics mm-hmm. and then had a few different treatment groups. They had one that they did nothing, that was their control group. They had one that they gave a typical three probiotic capsule oh, to. Yeah. Were you aware of this study? Yeah, I think I know where you're going with it. Yeah. Yeah. And and I don't remember what the other one was, but maybe some soil-based organisms or something. And No, I think they did a few. They did actually Oh, they did FMTs. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So the interesting thing to me, it blew my mind actually, was that the ones who got the three probiotics got worse. Mm-hmm. Their health was impinged in a bad way. And I think mm-hmm. their their flora not only didn't come back, but they lost diversity in their in their gut microbiome after that 
So it opened up a world to me that I had no idea. You can't just throw probiotics at somebody and say, oh, all's well, right? Mm -hmm. You say, well, yeah, we gave antibiotics, but now we're giving probiotics, so it'll be okay. Yeah, can't, I, can't do that. Yeah, since I read that study, I've actually not sold one probiotic. <laughs> or my, well, I've no. stopped taking them. I'm exaggerating, them. but I'm, yeah, I'm not taking them. I'm not selling them anymore. I used to sell the probiotics all the time, but it may, and it makes sense. I mean, the microbiome of the gut has somewhere between 300 and 1,000 different species. And then wow. we're trying to mimic that with a probiotic that has maybe 10 at the most and maybe not even the right ones. <laughs> so, right, right. I mean, it's ridiculous. So when I have a dog that ended up having to have antibiotics just because that, that was just the only way we could do this, I give them a fecal transplant afterwards. Or uh -huh. if they come to me and I know they have a history of having had antibiotics, I will give them a fecal transplant uh -huh. um, just to restore the gut, just to help them. Even if they don't have, ne you know, necessarily have any gut symptoms, I will still do it just because I know that the gut microbes, I mean, they run the body. They, they yes. run the ship. They outnumber the cells by a factor of 10. Yes. Genetically, they outnumber us by a factor of 150. So they're running this. They are running the show. So yes. I want them to be there the way they should, because yeah. then the animals have a much better chance of, of staying healthy or, or getting healthier and living a longer and better life. Right. So right. that's what I do. And, and then I, I don't think it would hurt to just repeat it once in a while. Just be, just like we do a little bit of detox here and there. Sure. Just to replenish it. I think that's that's good. And I use it on my puppy patients as well. Uh, when they come in for their first puppy visit, I send them home with some fecal capsules. Uh -huh. I don't do as long and as many, but I want to make sure that they have a good start with a good microbiome. And I have to say that I have very few that have diarrhea I know, love it. as a result yeah. of it. You know, that they makes good healthy. Yeah. So, I, yeah, I use fecal transplants and fecal capsules every day in my practice almost really. Nice, nice. And I'm always curious to know how, a couple things, how do you choose a donor and know that you're only going to do good and not put anything wrong into the, into the recipient? Yeah, that's the hardest part about fecal transplants is, is to find a donor. I had a really good donor dog who had never been sick in his life and his poop was like superior, unfortunately. Well, he got older and passed away. And I haven't since found another donor in my neighborhood. So I have to either buy the capsules from Animal Biome, which is usually where I get them from, or from Margot Roman, who has the fresh poop. I mean, it comes frozen, but it's from her oh, own okay. dogs, and they have a very good microbiome. But yeah, in theory, they should not be spayed or neutered. They should have very minimal or no vaccines dewormers and heartworm preventatives and things like that that can affect the microbiome. They should never have been on antibiotics or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. Uh, what else? Well, healthy their whole lives, which, you know, is certainly a plus. That's a, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. On a raw diet. Yes. Living in an environment that's as free of chemicals as possible. Uh, but it's hard. I, I had found a dog that really fit that description, but then we did the microbiome testing and his microbiome was not good enough. Uh, 
You know, uh, he had grown up somewhere in the mountains, way away from everything. Always a raw diet. I mean, perfect everything, and it was still not good enough. And wow. you know, every puppy that comes to see me, I'm I'm kind of following them and seeing, hmm, could that one be healthy enough? Uh-huh. But it's it's really difficult. It's really uh-huh. difficult. Uh-huh. As the planet gets less and less microbiologically diverse so do our animals i suspect right i mean it, we're living mm-hmm. in the like you say the soup of chemicals and mm-hmm. antibiotics and roundup it's it's probably harder than it used to be to find a healthy donor mm-hmm. yeah, yeah that's the problem that's the problem even the young dogs already come in with with issues you know yeah yeah so the other thing i've i've wondered about odette is how long lasting in a, I don't know if you can talk about an average case, how long of an effect do you see betterment or how, if you're going to give a, go through the tube and the rectum and, and give a nice bunch of flora to somebody, what's the sense of, do I have to come back and do that weekly, monthly, yearly, you know, what's, what's your sense of longevity? Um, it very much depends on the dog, that German shepherd bear, he needed some more but several months later and I hadn't he had been doing well and I hadn't really heard from the owners much so they were a little bit behind letting me know that he wasn't doing quite as well anymore so it, it depends a little bit I've had some dogs where I've done fecal transplants and they were feeling better for three days and then it came back and um, I think the one especially that I'm thinking about we never did any testing because that was a little bit before tests were available and i think he probably had some of these overgrowths that i see a bit more because we're doing some testing uh, and so he could have benefited from some special probiotic that would have reduced that number specifically at least that's kind of what i'm suspecting so i mean it really depends a little bit on how long they've had the issue how sure. severe and uh, what other factors play a role. Uh-huh. One other dog that I remember, he had some issues with food sensitivity and diarrhea and, and all that. And I think I only did one fecal transplant on him for the whole duration. And he did, he did quite well. So he didn't need another one, but nice. it's very, it's very, yeah, it very much depends. Yeah. Highly variable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. We're all biological systems, right? So mm-hmm. it's not going to be a, a rote thing that it'll last this long in, in everybody. Yeah, and I think that, you know, some of the dogs that have more gut issues are probably also probably a little bit of their weaker link. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so that may just be where they're just more prone to having recurrences and being a little bit more affected by things in the environment. Right, right. And I'm really enthused to hear that you're having results with skin cases because that's the that's the number one reason dogs go to vets for the mm-hmm. last 15 or more years. They've, they've got itchy skin, they've got allergies, they've got inflammation, they put all sorts of names on it like atopy, etc. But have you seen just brilliant results in general or is it is it the exception that you can turn skin around with the fecal work? Well, I wouldn't say brilliant. I've had a few that responded really well, but for the the majority of skin cases are just 
difficult. Yeah, they are. They just are. They are. And it, I used to, you know, a few years ago, I used to have better success with skin cases and now it's getting harder and harder. And I don't know exactly why. I'm wondering if, if some of it is also the stress from this whole COVID thing, you know, because people are more stressed out, the animals are more stressed out. Mm-hmm. And that also obviously affects the skin as well. But yeah, I've ha- I have some really hard cases where no matter what I do, it seems like it's not getting better and it's very yeah. depressing. Yeah, and I always yeah. think, oh, I wish I, I had your knowledge, Will, you know, about the homeopathy and, and being able to add that to it because... Yeah. And sometimes it's like, oh, my God, what do I do for this animal, you know? Yeah, it's it's challenging even doing nothing mainly except homeopathy for years and years, decades now. That's the most challenging thing to get well, because they mm-hmm. often come in with years of history of having skin disease. And they've often been suppressed for years before they landed on the homeopath's doorstep. So they said, we just spent thousands of dollars over the last three years, and our dog is still an itchy mess. Mm -hmm. Now what can we do? So Mm -hmm. yeah, even for my colleagues and I, who've been at it a long time and are treating the whole constitution, it's challenging as all get out. And ears, Mm -hmm. probably even even more so. Mm. The skin seems to be a little more responsive than the ears. Oh, really? Have have you seen ear, chronic ear problems also benefit from fecal transplants? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, I find that ear problems, I have a little better luck than the ears of itchy skin type of thing. Nice. Because ears tend to be more food sensitivity as well. So if I can figure that part out, get them on a better diet that they can tolerate and then restore the microbiome, it seems like a, it's a faster fix than just the skin issues that are just lingering and have been going on for years. Yeah, you know, good. making paws and it's, yeah. Good, good. And when we've got these dogs who have a shopping list of allergens, they're allergic to things that they've never even been exposed to, like these trees that don't live in their area and these mm-hmm. proteins that they've never eaten and all that. In general, do you put much faith in those tests when they come out like that? No, I, I don't. I don't even run these tests myself. Uh-huh. Because what if the neighbor has a Hawaiian plant that's blooming and that's the one that's causing the allergies in the dog? Yeah. Plus the the food sensitivity tests that are done with blood are IgE. So they measure immunoglobulin IgE. And the scent of food is usually not an allergy. It's usually more of a sensitivity. So those are different immunoglobulins that go up. So I prefer doing a saliva test, um, you know, Gene Dodd's uh, NutriScan. I think that one is more accurate. The other ones, yeah, I don't really go with those because mm-hmm. that's just, yeah, I don't trust that. And I don't do the environmental allergy tests that way. What I do is I just dampen a little cotton ball and then swipe it over their coat and then do some muscle testing to see if, if they have a reaction to it. Plus, I mean, in the end, sure, we want to eliminate some of the allergens just to give the body a chance to heal and and the immune system to relax a bit. But in the end, you have to try to find the underlying cause. Right, right. Pair the body because the immune system should not be overreacting to things. So we have to work on, on helping the immune system to respond more appropriately. 
right. which, you know, you do a lot with homeopathy, obviously, and I try other ways. <laughs> and and have you seen these these guys with a, even a, a list of food allergens? Over time, they can go back and eat those foods without being challenged? Yeah, especially when they when they show up as having being sensitive to just about everything. Mm-hmm. That's usually more of a leaky gut issue. So if I fix the leaky gut, then usually they can go back to eating some of that. Uh huh. Good. At so least they in don't, my experience. Yeah, that makes sense to me. They don't have to be on that narrow, narrow diet forever. No, no. Good. Well, and then some it's impossible because if they're sensitive to everything, I mean, all you have left is maybe pheasant and you know. Uh huh. <laughs> Really exotic yeah. stuff. Yeah, exactly. Kiwi exactly. or something. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And just kind of finally, is there any chance that things can get worse after giving a fecal transplant? Have you ever seen such a thing or heard of such a thing? I've had a few, I mean, not many, just maybe a handful that had a little bit of diarrhea afterwards. And I was attributed to taking a, a new foreign microbiome and putting it into the old that really wants to stay there. Mm-hmm. And so I figured that they probably are having a bit of a fight, right? you know, and, and um, see which one is going to stay. <laughs> so that's how I explain it, whether that's really how it works. I'm not sure, but I would suspect it, it is, you know, just a yeah. change yeah. because anytime we put more microbes and different microbes in there. Some will be out populated and are probably going to die. And bacteria or microbes that die, they release their interior, basically, which is chemicals. Yeah. And, and these chemicals, they can cause irritation of the gut. And so a little bit of diarrhea once in a while. Yeah. yeah. But nothing long lasting. It doesn't sound like. No, not. No. Okay. Okay. So really a pretty benign procedure with more mm-hmm. 95% upside and maybe a 5% chance of a, of a brief diarrhea. Is that yeah, about right? Maybe not even that, 95, maybe even, I mean, not even 5%, probably okay. even less than that. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's very safe, very simple, very easy for the animal and a little gross, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> If you're willing to do it, I mean, God bless you. That's a wonderful thing. There's, yeah. I, think we, I think we need to see more acceptance of that, you know, and I, and I think it's growing. I mean, if yeah. they're researching it at the university level for dogs and cats, and they have been for people for some time, I think mm-hmm. we've, got a, we've got a chance to get some diversity going. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, we have companies that sell good fecal capsules and people can just buy it themselves. They can even buy the test themselves. And nice. so it's very accessible, you know, I mean, even for people from all over the world, I have, I do phone consults and I have people from Hong Kong, Malaysia, Bangkok, other places who call me and, and they've already done the biome test, you know, with the animal uh-huh. biome and They've already done the, you know, gotten the capsules or I'll send them, send them the capsules. I mean, there's not much restrictions anymore. So it's very easily accessible, which is a nice thing. Yeah. yeah. Everybody can do it. And that may also be why it's becoming mainstream a little faster because it's accessible to everyone and you don't have to have your vet get it for you. Right, right. Yeah, that's a big thing. And I wonder if for a change, maybe veterinary medicine is helping lead the way on that, do you think? Well, 
in a way, certainly, just because we can use it for everything. You know, yeah. we have oh, zero yeah. we have... restrictions. You know, we right. don't have the FDA breathing down our necks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's that's the good thing, you know. Yeah. All right. So a, a procedure with minimal invasiveness with a lot of upside and very little risk at all. And it can be used for a wide variety of things from skin troubles to diabetes, it looks like, to behavioral issues and anxiety. And I, I think it's a, it's a fascinating area. And I'm, I'm glad you're right in the thick of it so to speak, mm-hmm. wading, wading through the thick of it. Sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, when you're doing these types of things, you can't avoid not making jokes about it because right. it's a little gross. So we come up with all kinds of, um, yeah, bet. yeah. Better than, ye- <laughs> better than yellow soup, I'm sure. You've, you've got some in the veterinary world that are better than the yellow soup that the Chinese had. Yeah, that sounds <laughs> disgusting. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks ever so much, Odette. I appreciate you coming on with me. And tell people how to find you online if they're interested. Yeah, so I have a website. It's odettesuterdvm.com. It's O-D-E-T-T-E-S as in Sam, U-T, sorry, T-E-R, S-U-T-E-R, dvm.com. Beautiful. And I also have, I'm on Facebook, um, same with my name, I have a YouTube channel. I have a book, What Your Vet Never Told You, where I kind of go through the basics of what it takes to be healthy. I wrote it for nice. my clients, really, nice. because I needed them to be on the same page as I am. Yeah, sweet. <laughs> but I have a video series as well, where I go into more depth on GI things as well, detox, you know, all the, what I call the six pillars of health, because, you know, education is, is crucial. Just what you do, you know, doing a lot of education. That's what I do. I do a lot of Facebook lives and things like that as well, just to empower people. Beautiful. Beautiful. And so, yeah. And thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute pleasure. You know, I've obviously followed your work and share your articles with people and such. And so it's, it's really amazing. I just wish you were available for homeopathy consults but you're not doing as much of that and you know so (laughs) that's sad (laughs) (laughs) i've got a number of colleagues who are though and and i I tell people how to find them on my on my resources page so Mm. it's a bit of a it's a bit of a hunt sometimes and you have to be willing to do it long distance more often than not like you say you can you can do this work across the globe Mm -hmm. so that's beautiful and we'll have show notes for this episode. So if you would send me those links for your website, your Facebook, your YouTube channel, et cetera. And we'll have those for you, my listeners, on um, episode number 31. This is going to be episode 31. So the way to access that most simply is just to go to vitalanimal.com slash 31. Thanks, Odette. Hope to talk to you again soon. Thank you so much. I hope so, too. All right. Bye for now. Bye-bye.